This is an ABC podcast. Back in the early 1970s, a brother and sister were running a little surf business on the Gold Coast, making boards and sewing bikinis. Mainly it was about good times and heading out into the ocean when the surf was good. And the actual business side of things was pretty far down the list of priorities. All that changed when their sister Gail turned up. With Gail's smarts and drive, the business grew and grew and she still runs Good Time Surf today. Fixing things has been what Gail Austin has done ever since she was a little kid. It started right back in her neighbourhood in Sydney, where at nine, Gail set up a billy cart rally to fundraise for a local family. Hi, Gail. Hi. <laughs> Were you a billy cart rider yourself back then? Oh, yes. I, I, I made my own. How? Yeah. What, what did Built it look my, like? I used to make them out of fruit boxes and all that sort of stuff. And, and I think my favourite one was when I turned my Texas trike three-wheeler bike and turned the front of it upside down so it was like a drag racing car. And that, that was my, fa- oh, it was really fast. <laughs> and I, we, we lived at Tarrant Point by then and I got up the top of the hill and just raced down the hill, which was where you finished was into the water, Botany Bay. And of course you had to go under the big Over. gates for the ferry. And so, and the ferry was coming in, I'll never forget when I first did this, roaring down there, racing and all the, because cars come off the ferry, you know. But anyway, fortunately I didn't kill anyone or I didn't <laughs> Or <die>. yourself. <laughs> Did you have brakes on your billy carts? No, you didn't in those days, no. We invented brakes. We started to realise we needed them because we used to use our feet. You'd have old Dunlop sand shoes on and you'd be scraping them along the ground, you know. But you'd swerve and turn and, you know, you had ways of surviving. (laughs) (laughs) And were they painted and and decorated or just the fruit box? not, Not in those days. We just made them and I don't remember those being painted or decorated, no. No. That was all about speed. It was all about speed and, and you know, how well they went and, and if you could beat everyone else. And I had to beat everyone else because I was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you get up this idea to, to start a billy cart rally? We used to go to the Movie Town News on a Saturday. It's the only time you saw the news and you saw the movies, you know, the flicks we call them. During the movies, they'd have Movie Town News on. And the news was incredible. It always had, when the Red X trial was on in Australia, Jelly Knight Jack, who was the driver, who was the famous driver, who I just adored. I adored, he had a car and he'd go around Australia through everywhere, out in the bush, chasing kangaroo, doing everything. And it just fascinated me. And he had all stickers all over his car. And that was it for me. So, you know, you're watching that as a youngster and they raised a lot of money for charity. They did a lot of good things. And uh, when I when this young family in near where I lived, who I knew, the, the father had a, an accident in a truck. He was a truck driver and he had an accident, which meant that they weren't, you know, things were pretty tough. And it's just my nature. I just thought, I know what I could do. I could do what Jelly Night Jack does. I could have a billy cart trial. I could copy it exactly, which is exactly what I did. I copied the Red X trial down to a T. I had checkpoint Charlies. I had one person pushing and one person sitting. I had people with, you know, taking scoring and making sure they didn't cheat (laughs) and all the things that they did on the, you know, and then we didn't actually put all stickers on everything. That came later in my life on my Land Rover, which was covered in stickers. But (laughs) But how many kids would have been involved in this? Well, there was a a photo at the beginning of the race, which shows you this crowd of people, parents and so forth, out the front of my mother's home when we started. And I'm just trying to remember how many were in it, probably might be, you know, 10 to 20 different things. I mean, Movie Town News turned up. That really? Was the, that was the most amazing because I wrote to them 
I wrote to Movie Town News and I wrote to the Red XL company. I wrote letters asking them could they help in any way. I was raising money and I wasn't sure what I was really doing. I was just writing because I thought I need help. And the amazing thing was the Red X Oil Company, well, first of all, Movie Town News came. And what was amazing was my parents didn't know, I didn't tell them what, what I was you doing. doing the, the Billy Carter no, no. I just, somehow or other, I just didn't make a fuss about it. You, you know, I just did it. You were too busy, probably. I was very busy doing it. <laughs> and so on the morning of the event, mum said, what's going on? I said, oh, I'm running the Billy Cart trial. And I think there's the news people are out there because mum and dad all dressed up ready to go to work, you know. And they opened the front door <laughs> and, and the front movie door, cameras. people out there, you know. <laughs> so it was quite amazing, but it was great. It was really good. The event went off very, very well. Did you win? Gail? I didn't compete in it. I was the I was the organizer, so I didn't compete in it. Fair when separation of powers. Yeah, that's right. I was the director of operations, so uh, you know, and I had to do the presentation at the end, and and then of course with the news there and everything else, it was just terrific. It was wonderful. And did you end up raising money to yes, help we did. this family? Now, I can't remember how much we raised, but we did raise quite a bit. But I charged like it was either threepence to enter, a candle which we could sell, or a bottle that I could sell. Anything that I could sell or money was what I how I got the thing going, yeah. And then I presented the family with some money at the end of it. But what was lovely was the Red X Oil Company, actually, um, they wrote to me after the event and uh, congratulating me on the on the job I did. And I've still got that letter, would you believe? And uh, they wrote to me and then they added 10 shillings for me and 10 shillings for the family. Now, honestly, that was a lot of money. The, I think the average wage wouldn't have been three pounds or two pounds a week. So I gave all that money to the family. You gave your yeah, I gave 10 it to shillings. My 10 shillings and their 10 shillings to them. And that was just wonderful, you know. And, and the letter, that, that I appreciated that letter very much. And they, they suggested I had a great future in organising events, which actually <laughs> turned out I did. <laughs> and that urge to, to help raise money for other people, where did that come from? Where was that impulse from? Well, one do doesn't think? really know. I think my mother really nailed it. One day, she said to me one day when I was doing various things, I bought home some money. I, I'd made two and sixpence and I came home with the money and I said, Mum, look what I've done because I always wanted to pay for an ironing lady for my mother because she didn't like ironing. So I always wanted to earn enough money to pay for an ironing lady for Mum. And I came home with this two and six and Mum looked at it and went, okay, that's a shilling for board and then there's uh, so much for something else and blah, blah. And there was six months left. She had threepence for your sister and threepence for your brother. And I, was, I said, threepence each for them. They've done nothing. What have they done to deserve any funds, you know? And I was quite annoyed and upset, you know. And I, I said, they're not getting any of this money. It's not for them. And mum said, no, 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 you have to give it to them. She said, and I looked at my mother. I've never forgotten it. She said to me, Gail, what you've got to understand is you have a gift, that's what she called it. So you have a gift and you have to learn to share with others because you're going to do a lot of things in life and you've got to use use that gift to share with others. And I said, do I have to share it with my brother and sister? Because <laughs> you know what it's like in families. <laughs> but I did. And uh, I did go under the house overnight and didn't come out till the next day. So I wasn't exactly a generous human being. <laughs> I wasn't kind. <laughs> you got there. What kind of home was it, Gail? What, what were things like at your place? My father came from Redfern, seven boys in the family. My mother came from uh, just nearby. and I think it was, she was born in the same area because my grandfather owned a business in Walker Street, Redfern, which was a, a second-hand dealership in uh, all sorts of, you know, scrap iron and, and uh, machinery and stuff like that called Heron Forbes. As a child, I used to be sort of babysat there 
instead of going to a kindergarten or whatever, I used to stay in the factory and I would be sitting on the floor and they'd get me to sort out nuts and bolts or whatever they were, nails and things, you know, copper and brass. And that's what I, that's what I did. And, uh, and I, my grandfather owned that factory. He died when I was three, so I was very young. Those formative years there really made a difference in my life. And often people say, why do you like wheeling and dealing? I said, because that's what I was born to do. I used to watch and listen. My grandmother had a great influence on me. She was always saying, Gail, you're just like Dada. That was her husband who was very much older than her. So the impression all came through my grandmother. You know, my mother used to say, don't listen to your grandmother. Don't listen to those stories because she also used to have those wonderful foibles, you know. If you spilt something, you had to throw something over your shoulder and, you know, for luck and all that sort of stuff. And I went along with all that, you know. So. <laughs> what brought your family up to Queensland when you were still Well, a kid? we were in Sydney, first of all, in the city, in, in Sydney, and then, and then we moved to Tarrant Point. That's where we, the Billy Cart trial was held. But uh, my father was given an opportunity to work for a steel company in Queensland. So he came up to Queensland um, to do the job. My mother definitely didn't want to leave Sydney, wouldn't come. She didn't want to go. She's, and in the end, she just said, my mother said it was my fault that we came to Queensland because I can remember sitting there with my mother and saying, now, Mum, Dad's in Queensland. We're here and we've just got to go up there and make a family, you know. She always said to me, it was always your fault we went to Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> your dad, like many people, struggled with alcohol. Yeah. How did that play out in the family? Well, my, my father, unfortunately, my father's family, his mother and father, who I knew his mother, his, my grandmother, very well, she was an alcoholic. I didn't really realise she was an alcoholic as a very young person. I remember at Tarrant Point, we had a piano on the veranda and she used to play the piano and the kookaburras would come and she used to disappear every now and then. She'd just go somewhere and I didn't know where she'd gone. And of course, she'd be drinking. And my father was always a controlled drinker because my mother controlled everything. She used to, you're not allowed to have any alcohol in the house till after five o'clock. And so she was pretty good. I think my father would have had a much worse life had it not been for my mother. And he was, he was what you would have termed a social alcoholic. But he was an alcoholic, there's no doubt about it. Was it ever yeah. scary at home for you? Oh, yeah, there were times. Yeah, of course, there were times it was scary. You know, yet you, you naturally alcohol brings out a violence in, in nature in people. And, you know, there were times when uh, I had to defend my mother. And, uh, you know, and that's what I did. Yeah, there was, there was times when I just got angry and said, you can't yell at mum, you can't, mum, mum's, you know, doing the right thing. And so my father and I had a good relationship, but a very, it was sort of respect, you know, like, you throw something at me and I'll throw something back, you know. And once you moved up to Queensland, how did life in the Sunshine State suit you? Really good. No, it was good. I think there were many good things about coming up here. I mean, I came up here and uh, I changed school. That was really good. That was one of the best things. Why? Well, because you, I was at a, at a school in Sydney and now I've got a new school, you know. What was wrong with the school in Sydney? I, well, I didn't like the – I was in the Catholic schools as a youngster and I just rejected – I wished to go home to my mother and said, I don't want to stay in a Catholic school. I want to go to a school where there's no religion. The, the Catholicism in those days was all about guilt. They'd say to you, if you do something wrong, you might go home and your mother might be dead. You know, God might strike your, your mother dead. Things like that. I mean, how ridiculous. <laughs> your mother might be dead because you've done something stupid. You know, so you sort of were running home to make sure your mother was all right if you, if you misbehaved, you know. So as a very young child, all this nonsense, and I was a pretty bright kid. I, I used to look at it and think, this is not right. It isn't right. And I used to stand up in the class and say, I don't believe in this. I just don't believe it. 
you know. And How so did that go down? It didn't go down very well. I got the cane <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> I used to have to practice with, I had to get paraffin wax and rub it on my hands because I knew I'd have the cane for something. So I'd always used to protect myself, you know. When you were living up in Queensland, tell me what happened one night when you were 17 or so. What happened in a car? I had a dream that I, I was in a car. I was in, a, I was in an accident. Something happened to me and there was a big tree, a big wide tree and a little tree. I, was, I can still see them. And anyway, that was just one of those things. I had this dream about it and it just so happened my family were going to the Gold Coast the next day. And my mother said, now we're going to the Gold Coast because it's someone's birthday or something like that. And so I just said, look, I'm not going to go because I was just worried. I'd had this dream about this accident and I didn't want it to happen with my family. So I thought, whatever's going to happen, I'll leave it. I won't go. So my parents went without me. And then would you believe they rang me after in the morning and said, look, we've left the present behind. You're going to have to come down. And a friend of mine, at the time, a lady I knew had just bought a brand new Volkswagen car and she happened to drive over to say, I want to go for a drive in this new car. I said, my parents want me to take the present down to the coast. Would you mind driving down there? So we drove down and on the way we went over the bridge, the old bridge at Narang. The original bridge was a single lane sort of bridge or two, very narrow. And as we were going over the bridge, a caravan jackknifed in front of us and we managed to get around it. And honestly, I thought, oh, you beauty, I've got away with it. You know, it's not going to happen. And then we went to the coast, gave them the presents and everything. And then uh, my driver just said, I want to go home now, get home early. And I thought, oh, I didn't want to go back in the car. I just didn't want to go back in the car. My mother said, you have to go because you came down. When you come with someone, you've got to go home with them, you know. On the way home, there was that much traffic. In those days, cars were bumper to bumper from the Gold Coast to Brisbane. Anyway, uh, we got towards Bean Lee and it was just bumper to bumper and I just said, why don't we take the old back road because I knew all the bush tracks, you know. So we did and it was raining. So when, as we came round the bend, we hit water in a Volkswagen. So the Volkswagen more or less floated above the water and spun around and then, of course, it rolled down this hill and there it was, the big tree and the small tree. That tree, which I can still see in my mind right now, saved my life because the thing rolled down, the driver was out of the car, another lass was with us, a, a neighbour from where we were living in Brisbane at the time, and she was wrapped up in a blanket underneath me. She thought I was dead, so she took off. And then the driver had the good sense to run back down. She'd been thrown through the windscreen. She so ran were down. you unconscious? I was unconscious. So she ran down and got me and turned the engine off and can you believe your luck, just about, I don't know, apparently it was about 100 metres up the road before this accident, was another accident where two nurses were attending to another accident, but it was a minor thing. So they ran down and they came to the car and they managed to get, because I'd broken my spine. So they got me out of the car and had it not been for them, I wouldn't have been walking because my spinal injuries were so severe. And uh, so they got me out of the car and got the ambulance, obviously, and got me to the PA hospital. I don't remember any of that, none of that. I can only still see those two trees. I went back there 10 months later to have a look, and there they were. The image in my mind was exactly what I saw. So when you came to, yeah. you know, how serious were, were your well, injuries? Well, I, I fractured my, in my spine, you've got the thoracic vertebrae. I fractured the second to the ninth thoracic vertebrae with the disc. So they're all just one massive bone. And then I damaged the C1 and C2 in my neck, which is the most serious part of it. And I damaged my hearing, which is why I have hearing aids. <laughs> I damaged my hearing. They told me then your hearing, will, as you get older, it'll be worse. You know? And it was to do with the noise of the engine 
in my ear because I was on top of the engine. When I went backwards, I was in the, imagine the passenger seat, you do a somersault backwards into the engine. So that's virtually how my spine was fractured, you know, broken. How hard was it for you to learn to walk again after that? Well, what had to happen was, well, I was very lucky because there were two doctors at the PA hospital. One was a neurologist, I think, and one was an orthopaedic surgeon. And they had seen what I'd done up until the accident because I'd been a sports person. I'd been in state teams and tennis, hockey, you know, basketball, everything. So I was as fit as a fiddle. And so they knew that and they knew that that kind of uh, result required discipline in training. So they just said, now, Gail, you see this hair? Well, that's the difference between you walking and not walking. I said, is that right? I mean, I'm lying there because I couldn't get up. And I'm saying, around me were all these people with, well, they're in traction and wheelchairs. And he said, now, we've just got a simple message for you. Do you want to finish like this or do you want to walk? I said, well, I want to walk. How can I do that? And he said, well, you just have to do what we tell you. And I said, that's easy. Tell me what to do. They said, it's called physiotherapy. And they sent a physiotherapist in and she's told me the first thing, I have to move my eyelashes because I was burnt as well. And I remember it took me all day to move those eyelashes, what was left of them anyway. It was a day by day by day by day. And my recovery was, as they said, was unbelievable. I I just kept, I never stopped. Well, you made this remarkable recovery and you got a financial settlement from that accident. Eventually, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did you decide to do with the money? Well, the thing was, somehow or other, I got a copy of Queen magazine and I'd never seen Queen magazine before. What was Queen magazine? Queen magazine's a fashion magazine. And I opened it up and it was incredible pictures of fashion and women doing amazing things and clothes that I'd never seen in my life. And I thought, gee, this looks pretty good. And London was on the, you know, London. And I thought, this is 1960s, you know. And I went, wow. And then when I had the money, I said, as soon as I got it, I said, mum, you know what I'm going to do? She said, what? I said, I'm going to England. I want to go on a boat. I'm going to England. She said, all right. We'll get you a ticket, get a passport. In three weeks, I was on that boat, <laughs> on the Fair Star, yeah, headed for England. I had an incredible journey because on the way, I broke my arm. What happened was, this is written in, you can read about it, in the, the book about the Fair Star, there's a whole chapter devoted to a woman who tried to save a lady's life, which I did, and uh, who got you know injured as a result. And what had happened was, I'm on the boat, first night on the boat, can you believe it? First night. I woke up in the morning early, as I normally do, and I went walking along the, the bridge. And I, from a distance, I saw a man, a big, big person and a little person, and I saw what I thought wasn't very good. So I ran all the way up there and grabbed hold of the fellow. And unfortunately for me, this man was very strong. So he picked me up, held me above his head and headed for the edge of the boat. And I'm up in the air. I'm looking down. I'm thinking... Jeez, I hope I remember how to swim. (laughs) I'm figuring I'm going to be in the water, you know. He was going to throw me overboard. Fortunately, the seamen on board had seen all this and they were running up, because big long ship, they were running already towards this fellow before I got to him and they saved me. So what he did, he threw me against the wall of the ship. That's what he did, just threw me against the ship. So I broke my elbow in two places. And what happened to that that man? Was he taken off the ship? He was put in the brick. So yeah. he stayed on the ship all yeah, the way, all the way to in the, the brig, yeah, all the way to England, yeah, yeah. The the person he'd attacked is a bit of a mystery, really, because I never, they never, she never came forward, like no one found her. And then one day I walked into a bar there on the oh, weeks later, and I saw this person. I thought that's the woman, and she wasn't a young girl; she was a much older woman. Interesting. And I went, my God. 
So she asked me to be quiet and not bring attention, which I didn't. I didn't bring attention to her. I just let it go. Gail, so you'd already had this adventure before yeah. you even stepped yeah, off the I ship. To, even, I mean, think the amazing, another amazing moment was we went to Cairo and uh, the, 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 we were at the Suez Canal and what you used to do is to get on a bus and go to Cairo in the bus and then come back and meet the ship further up the canal before it goes out of the canal. Anyway, we all hold our Aussies on the ship, so off we go on this boat. And I've, of course, got my arm in a sling. And uh, we off we go around Cairo and everywhere. And the bus we were on broke down. So basically, uh, we were held up, you know, in this very sleazy place on the, on the waterway. And everyone's going, what are we going to do? You know, we're not going to get back to the ship. And I saw this fellow with a boat. And I knew, I said, all right, everyone give me money. So I got money from everybody, went over to the bloke and I said, we need a boat to chase that ship because the first day I was going up, you could see it going up. So I sort of, I got the money and I handed him, I only gave him half, but I thought this is a dangerous place. So I gave him half the money and I said, other half when you get us there. Okay. So we all piled in the boat and the boat was almost underwater. Like it was too many people on this boat. It's only a little tiny thing. We putt putt up the up after the ship. The good news was as we're coming up towards the ship, I could see the captain right up the top and I kept waving my broken arm, you know, the sling, so he'd know it was me on the boat. And of course, what happened was they brought the ship, the boat alongside the ship. And while the ship's moving, mind you, then they threw ropes over like ladders for people to climb up to get into that cargo hold. But all those kids that were with me, what buggers they were, they all piled on and off they went. You're and I'm there still with your broken and arm. And I'm there with my broken arm, the sling. And I always remember the fellow that owned the boat. He looked at me and he said, Bugger, buggers, no, no, naughty, no. Yeah, he's really cranky with them for leaving me behind. So then the next minute, the captain obviously organised it. Next minute came down a special thing for this fellow to tie me onto so they could drag me up. Otherwise, I'd still be there. <laughs> so by the time we got to England, I was pretty, oh, well, what else is going to happen? <laughs> so you, you've stayed in Earl's Court. What kind of place were you staying Well, like, as everyone always stayed in, you know, like little rooms where you're supposed to have three people, you know what I mean, or five people. The one I was in was supposed to have three. I think there were 11. You know, they sort of, that's what they did in those days. But the thing was, being there, you, at least you, people knew what was going on. And all, and I, I, when I first got there, I just thought, what am I going to do? And they, I said, there's anywhere where you can see antique boxes because I loved old boxes, probably from my Billy Cart <laughs> days. And so they told me Portobello Road. So it was only in London a week, virtually, and I said, oh, I'll go down there. So I went down there and I'm walking down Portobello Road and I'll never forget it. There was a, a girl standing there, Yvonne, the name of the girl was, as, as I found out. She was wanting to sell her very way out clothing bloody brilliant as far as I was concerned, in Portobello Road. And the antique dealer did not want hippie-type, you know, clothing in her antique place. So anyway, so I was standing there listening to it all, and then I looked down the side in Denby Denby Mews, and there was a brand-new aluminium roller door, like it came out, one of those doors, you know. And I looked at that, and I thought, well, if I was her, I'd rent that to her, and then she'd earn some money, keep her off the street, and it might attract more people. So I told this woman that. I said, oh, look, excuse me, why don't you rent that door down there? Hello, I'm Gail from Brisbane, and yeah. I think you should, yeah. you should rent that. Well, that's exactly what she said to me was, and who are you? And I said, I'm Gail from Brisbane. That's right, from Australia. I'm Gail from Australia. And uh, she said, what do you know? I said, well, I reckon that's a better idea than arguing with her here. And did they listen? Yes. The only thing is she said, I will not rent to her. I will rent to you. And I thought, oh. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I've got the chance of having a business. So I said, yeah, well, okay. So I said to this girl, my name's Gail. 
you want to go into business with me? Because if you go into business with me, we get to rent the, sh- the whole thing. So that's how it started. And when I went to the factory where Yvonne was making the clothes, it was in a basement, the back of Carnaby Street. So I'm in there helping with all the clothing and making and everything because we're still going down to Portobello Road. But I just thought, I don't have to walk around here, see what else goes on. So I walked around, and the next street around is Carnaby Street. So I walked down there, and there was John Stephen was on the left-hand side, Lady Jane was on the right, and there was a shop called Kleptomania in Kingley Street. So those three were the only businesses I saw. But talk about a revolution. I looked at them and I thought, my God, this is something special. So I went back to Yvonne. I said, Yvonne, we should rent a shop around in that street because I reckon it's really good. And uh, so I got hold of an agent, found out where I could rent cheaply because we didn't have any money. You know, how to rent a shop with no money wasn't easy in London. And uh, But anyway, I managed to get the shop and uh, we did that. So we had the downstairs part. Eventually, we lost the downstairs part, not through not paying the bills. It's just that he wanted to put the, keep putting the rent up and we just couldn't afford it. So we stayed upstairs. So you move into, you, you open this store in Carnaby Street, and what was it like? Like for, for people who weren't part of that or have only heard the name, what was exciting about well, that it was, street? Well, to me, to me, like seeing Yvonne's clothes, you know, the colour. I think the colour was incredible. Absolutely amazing things that I was seeing. Things, I mean, I came from Australia. What did I know about fashion? The difference and the atmosphere. There was an atmosphere about the place. It was quite incredible, it, it, and it grew very quickly. Did you change the way you dressed when you moved there in 66? Well, I guess guess I've always been pretty ordinary with my dressing. I always want to be comfortable, not sort of uncomfortable. So I kept my my Dunlop sand shoes. I always wore them all the time until I wore them out. And, in fact, somebody made a cast of my shoes in a plastic thing. They used to do that in London. And I've still got this broken piece of plastic, my original shoes, but... You know, I started wearing the, I wore the wore dresses and the miniskirt, you know, I wore the miniskirt. I've got a photo of me in a miniskirt. I mean, I don't think I'd ever worn a skirt. And I was, you know, it was really good. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Gal, what brought the English singer Scylla Black into your store one All day? that happened there was I didn't even know who she was. I, I never heard of Scylla Black. And I was just in the in our little boutique showroom and in came this, this woman and she had a, I always remember a voice like this Liverpudlian voice, you know, unusual for me anyway. And she just said, I'm getting married. I'm going to be in, to a registry office and I want something special to wear. And someone said, you might have it here. So... I went around and I thought the mover dress is suited beautifully. What did it look like? I bought material which was 36-inch velvet material, which has a selvage along the edge. So that means you don't have to make a hem. So this was my idea, this, this, this dress. And I said, then we'll roost the bodice so it'll fit everybody. So, and then if you use all different materials like velvet, we used many ter- materials for the mover dress, then it will fit, it'll be easy to fit. No, no hem, easy to sew, and we had Maria Charolambus was our main sewer, wonderful woman. She had glasses like, uh, you could, lenses were like an inch Bottle thick, yeah, really thick. And she sewed us, she said, boom, boom, sew them, do all the ruching. Very difficult thing to do, to do it properly. So they were made brilliantly, you know, and so nice sleeve, a little bit of flair at the end of the sleeve. And uh, and those velvet materials in those days were brightly colours, you know. And I know the one that she chose was a reddish colour, 
But the photo of her in that dress with her husband is definitely there, and it's it's our dress for sure. <laughs> and uh, but you know, it was just one of those things. Did and, people come and want to want the same dress after oh, that? Oh well, I think when, once she'd got the dress, I think that made a big difference. That helped sell many dresses, you know. This area of London was, of course, you know, the Beatles stomping ground. Yes. Did you ever any encounters oh, yeah, with I them? I did. Uh, I was very lucky because, uh, but there was a fellow called Klein who had something to do with management of the Beatles. He came to our shop in Carnaby Street. And the reason he came, I think, because I had a reputation for management and for, you know, dealing with issues because dealing with Mr. Power, who managed Carnaby Street as a real estate agent, was like dealing with the mafia. You know, you really had to be smart to deal with this man. He was real difficult, very, uh, very, very dangerous to deal with. And everyone knew how well I did with him and nobody else, I don't think, did as well. So suddenly Mr. Klein came to see me and he said he'd heard about my reputation in business and he he asked me would I do him a favour that John Lennon had bought by this stage a property or rented a property in Covent Garden. It was a big warehouse, you know, and the idea of the place was freedom of thought, freedom of art, freedom of anything. And uh, he was a bit worried about, you know, what, how free this would get. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and asked me would I care for it when I wasn't busy, not as a major project, but to go there and have a look and report back to him. And that's how I managed to go into the, where the Beatles, their office and so forth. But anyway, I went, I remember the, the, the best image I can give you is the first time I walked in there. Remember, I've come from Australia. I'm not, you know, I'm not into any of the nude scenes or things like that. And I walk into this place and there was a play going on and it had Derek Nimmo was one of the actors. I always remember him. There were people doing all sorts of things in there, but I just opened the door to this play and everybody was in the nude, like the audience, <laughs> the players, you know, everything. It was unbelievable. I just looked and went, oh, dear. <laughs> but I thought this is probably okay. But, you know, I thought I don't think I'll stay. So I stepped back out of it. So it sounds like life was exciting and, and interesting and, and, and going great for you in London. It was wonderful. What, what brought you back to Australia? Uh, well, that, all, all the reason I came home was because of my mother. She kept contacting me saying she felt my brother and sister had started something. She didn't see a future in it unless there was some business management. And you're the person who can do something. And we really need you to come home. Because in those days, you know, I think on the Gold Coast and everywhere, it was the same as London. They were all smoking pot and doing that sort of thing. And, and so mum said, you know, I'm worried about that. I said, oh, God, mum. I said, I've seen all that here. I don't need any more of it because I've did, never been interested myself. You did know? your mum think you could straighten things out? Yeah, she always thought that I could, you know, solve the, solve all the problems. <laughs> so what did you find when you came to the Gold Coast? What well, was going on? really, I, got, I arrived home on Christmas Eve 1971, I think it was, or 72. I can't quite remember. So the first on Boxing Day, I said to my parents, I'll go around and have a look at the factory. Just because no one's going to be there, and I'll just go and have a look and, and see. And this is a surfboard factory. This is my, my brother's factory. And I went there, and I'll never forget it because I, I'm an asthmatic. So I opened the door, <laughs> and you couldn't breathe. I mean, I just nearly fell backwards for the fumes of the fiberglass and God knows what other fumes were there. <laughs> and I just literally went, oh, my God, this is the unhealthiest place I've ever seen. How, how could you ever survive, let alone run a business? And then I uh, had a look at the little kiosk around. That wasn't too bad. It was just a small cigarette kiosk. It was so small, like it was just cigarette kiosk is what it was. And they were so selling just bikinis. No, just bikinis and one surfboard in there and the bikinis. That was it. So this whole laid-back, dope-smoking, surfer hippie vibe, it doesn't sound 
like you. What did you first think when you saw this quote-unquote business your brother and sister had set up? Well, I thought, I don't really want to be part of any of this. And I had a job to go to in, in America. So my aim was just to help, get them on their feet, do what I can, and then I was off to America. I'm still here. <laughs> so you decided that you're going to bring in some of the smarts that you developed in London and yeah. some of that drive that you've yeah. got. How tough was it to get financial backing as a woman Well, in you business? couldn't get it. I mean, I decided we should open a shop in in Brisbane. So my brother went up and I went up. We found this old butcher shop down in Breakfast Creek and it was very cheap and it was ideal. You know, we could turn, turn it into something, which we did. Originally, uh, the, the bank in bank near where the, the shop was, and my father dealt with that bank. And what my father did, he well, he sort of, the bank, I wasn't in the bank account, my brother was. And so my father sort of guaranteed things, you know what I mean? Not that he had any money, because he'd had his share of troubles too. They weren't any funds. And is it because he was a man that he was able to be course, that guarantor? So you weren't, weren't well, going to be let money? I think to show you how, how ridiculous it was at the time, I then got the business going and everything. And then eventually I said, now it's all right. You know, I got it to a stage where my brother was able to put some money on a house. Uh, you know, everything was going quite well. And I can't remember how long it was, you know, a year or whatever it was. And I said, I'm going to America. So, so everyone freaked out. You can't go to America. You know, how can you leave? You know, it's terrible. And, you know, it went on and on and on. And I said, look, if I'm going to, I didn't earn any money. I wasn't paid anything. So I said, you know, I've got to earn a living. And uh, so they decided that my brother said, well, how about we go halves in the business? And I thought, yeah, halves in how much debt? <laughs> you know, like that's what in the end it would be. So I, we decided we'd do that. And uh, we, we decided we, I, I said, all right, if I go halves in it, at least I've got a chance of getting some money, getting a living, you know, because I was staying with friends and you've got to pay your way. <laughs> and was there a point then when you took over the business completely? Well, well I think, I guess from the business perspective, I was running the business from day one. And what did some of the male competitors in the oh, software that was, think uh, of it? It was the worst. Oh, no, it was terrible. They, Tell me. I think there was a great article in uh, Tracks magazine which called me the, the Iron Lady of Surfing, they called me. You know, I was looked upon as some sort of monstrous businesswoman, you know, who was taking the surfing industry by storm <laughs> and turning it upside down and all the rest of it. You know, there were r ridiculous criticisms. What, you know? When you read stuff like that or heard stuff like that, how did you react? I'd, I'd had that all my life. I'd been in business since I was seven, and I've had it all my life. So it, it just like, you know. Did it make you want to fight harder? Well, I think the fight was in me always from a very early age. And I think a great example, when we bought that building, like my father organised for the bank to finance that building, but my name wasn't on it. I'm making all the money, bringing all the money in. Everyone's off surfing. And suddenly I said, what's happened to this building we're buying? Dad said, oh, you don't need your name on it, Carl, you know. I went, oh, right, so I've got to pay for it, earn the money to pay for it. And that was the way it was. Even my father thought like that. They you all... couldn't get that changed? Your no, name well, wasn't I, of course on. I did, yeah. And I just simply said, well, once again, I'm going to America. <laughs> I'm going to hand you all I own in the business for nothing, and I'm off. And, and that... that changed everything. <laughs> Is it true that some, some guy from another surf store came in and urinated in your store? Yeah, that was when I first opened at Breakfast Creek. What happened? There was an opposition business nearby. I think they were from a different area, but they came into Brisbane, opened a shop just down the road, and the youngest brother of that family, he came in and said to me, I, I had well, the surfboards, we had a butcher's 
rack, you know, going in a half moon shape. You walk into the butcher's shop, there's the half moon with all the meat hanging on it. Well, I'd put surfboards around that. And I had a chopping block, the old meat chopping block I used to make the skateboards on, you know. Anyway, he's standing there, I'll never forget it, and he just said, we're going to put you out of business. And he weed on my surfboards. He weed? He weed on my In front, in front of, of you in yeah. the store. And telling me he's going to put me out of business. And I've never forgotten that because I said, if you're my opposition, I'm going to be a multi, multi-millionaire. And that's exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surfing yourself as well? Did you well, get into that? as a youngster, that? of course, I surfed. Everyone in Australia, you know, where you grew up, you went surfing, body surfing, everything. When board surfing was coming in before I went to England, first of all, I broke my spine, so that cut me out of that. But I'd surfed. I'd ridden surfboards. I was in the Neptunes. I, was, I did all sorts of things, you know. So, yes, I was surfing, but I couldn't with a broken spine. So when I came home from England, one of the things I thought, once I realised I'm committed to the business, I went to the doctors and I said, look, I'd like to start surfing. What do you think? And they kind of felt it was a bit dangerous because one click of the body and I go out to it for a minute or so and that you can drown. So they said they didn't think it was a good idea, but I said the action lying on the board will strengthen my spine, will help me enormously. I said, so if I make sure there's someone with me all the time, they said, that's what you've got to do. So that's what I made sure of. And then I got back into surfing. And how good did you get? Oh, well, I I think my my best trophy was third place in Queensland. But the amazing thing about that third place was that there was a number of events. It was before the 1974 floods. And there were a number of events beforehand where I turned up to every one of them. So I had a few points. And I only had to run third to get – I only had to run – I only had to finish the contest. I had to ride three waves to get the third-place trophy. And on the day of the event, uh, the cyclone was blowing and the surf was, like, gigantic. And according to the uh, records, at Miami Beach, a surf wave was measured at 23 feet. Now, when that surf wave was measured at that, I was out the back of Kira thinking I was going to die. <laughs> and this is how I got my third-class trophy. It was ridiculous. I mean, I'm out there. I didn't want to go out. My brother said, you've got to go out. You, you can get your trophy. You know, you've got to go out. I'm going, geez. So anyway, when there was a lull, a lull, I went out and I decided to go out round with the sweep, you know, right around, because I knew I couldn't get out through the rough water. So then I'm way out the back. I looked back and all I could see was a sort of a haze, you know, and I thought, I'm going to die. There's no way, because they had no leg rope in those days. And, like, I was pretty, you know, I could swim in that, but I thought, you know, this is dangerous. And these waves, you could see these mountains of water coming towards me. So I thought, I've got to ride three waves. So the first mountain of water, I stood up and just dived down, straight off. That's one. Second one, I did the same. Then the third one was so big, it was so gigantic, I knew this is it, I'm going to die. That's true, that's exactly what I thought. So I thought, well, I'll stand up and dive down. So I stood up, I dived down and did something you should never do. I grabbed the board and literally hung onto it like a, like a torpedo. And that's exactly how I got to the beach. And I can remember landing on the beach way down at North Kira somewhere and a bit battered and a few blood bits here and there. And my surfboard finished up on the rocks. And I thought, I'm alive. And then just this huge wave going backwards. I thought, my God. So then I grabbed my surfboard and I don't remember a single thing 
between then and my car and getting home, except to say my mother said, I told you not to do that. <laughs> but you got your trophy, yeah, I Yeah, I got the trophy. Yeah. <laughs> what was kind of going on with women surfing in Australia in the 70s? Well, in those days, I think probably the best way of putting it was, I remember on the January after I'd sort of gone to the factory and that. So in January, there was a competition at Durambar Beach. And uh, so my brother was in this competition, so I went over and there was there was a couple of women there and I watched the competition and all the men sort of judged the boys. They were, it was all, all done. And then when the girls came on, a couple of cadets were on the beach to judge them and all the rest of them were in the, in the tent getting drunk. And I thought, this is not going to do much for women surfing. And I, when the girls came out of the water, I said, when I left Australia, Phyllis O'Donnell had won 1964. She'd won the world championship. Well, what's happening now? And Phyllis O'Donnell was there. She said nothing. I said, well, this is ridiculous. What, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you can't. After having that win, I come here and this is where you're at. And, uh, and it just dawned on me straight away. I said, you've got to have a, you've got to do this yourself. So I spoke to the guy on the beach who was the, the boss of the unit. And he, um, he was the president of surfing. Or he became the international president of surfing. And I said to him, well, make them a separate organisation and uh, and then they can develop their own thing, not have to impede on the, the men's status, which were well ahead. They were well ahead, the men, and the women weren't up to it, so they had to get up up to speed. And so uh, that was so, – so anyway, on the beach there, there was myself, a friend of mine, Judith Anderson, um, Phyllis O'Donnell, the old world champion, and we decided we'll, we'll call it the Queensland Women's Surf Riders Association. Judith was the treasurer and Phyllis was the secretary. And what were you, Gail? I was the president, obviously. <laughs> I needn't to ask. Yeah, yeah. And that's funny. Recently I saw an article someone wrote on Facebook saying in that, at that time Gail wished for an organisation. We didn't wish for it. We said this is it and we began. Later on, of course, others joined and it became, you know, what it is today and, and more and more. So things were going great with your surfing, with the women surfing, with the business. And then one day in 1984, you got a phone call at 4am. Oh, yeah. What shop, happened? My shop burned down. Yeah. A phone call came and I, I was living at Windsor and I'm looking out the window and I could see this volcano of smoke going up over the Story Bridge. And I thought, my shop's on fire, as it is said. It certainly is, Gail. He said, you better get over here. I said, okay. So I drove over there and, of course, it was gutted. It was totally, you know, ripped to pieces. And uh, I'm in the old landy parked opposite the, this burning, burning place. It was sort of, you know, the fire was down to a you know, quiet stage by then. And, you know, you sort of look at something like that with the history of my, my history in life, and I just looked and I went, well, go, what do you want to do? Do you want to go, go over there and get on with it, or do you want to drive away? Oh, I'll go and get on with it. Really? You didn't even for a minute I didn't, think? Well, that, that's the minute I thought about it. Less than a minute. Yeah, less than a minute. About it. And I, the interesting thing was I drove around the back, parked my truck, and, of course, as the day wore on, people were delivering stuff because nobody knew shop had burnt down. So I was literally thrust into action. I had to find somewhere to put stuff, you know what I mean? Because all this gear's arriving. Where do you put it? You haven't got a shop, you know. What, what did your bank manager think about you starting I think the most, again? I think the wonderful thing was the bank manager at the front of the shop. I was out the front when, it was, when I first went out, when I first arrived, and um, he came along and I was out the front there talking with the fireman, talking about whether there was any more inflammables in the place to make danger for anyone and he just he was crying he actually had tears in his eyes he said you're finished girl I can't believe it and he just he was really broken and I said and I'll never forget I said would you stop whinging 
and get over to the bloody bank and get me the impossible loan because I'm going to need it. And he did. And it was the, the impossible loan. I only paid that off three years ago. People often say, oh, you've done so well. I go, yeah, I have. But in the meantime, I, the beautiful thing about that loan was I was able to forget I'd had the fire, which is what I needed to do. Forget the fire. This is a new business. Start again. And that's what I did. Over the years in the business when you've occasionally had kids come in looking to take some of that surf gear without actually paying for it, <laughs> how have you handled it? Oh, the thing about, I mean, I was a kid once myself and I've done that. I've been in trouble for stealing something. You know, you've all, we've all done that. I don't know if everyone's done it, but we've all done something that's not right. And, you know, each time I'd catch a, catch a kid, they're always pretty full of fire, you know. And I'd grab them and give them a real hiding and go, you know, hey, listen, mate, you want to steal something? And if I felt the kid was, you know, had something in him, you know, something there, I'd say, right, I'll give him a job. I'll give you a job and see how good you are. You give the shoplifter a yeah, job. I did. And I reckon, Judy reckons, my lady was helped me with the business for many years. She said to me, you've employed over 100 shoplifters over the years. <laughs> and how did those kids usually turn out? Oh, there's only one that finished up in jail. Only one. All of them, you know, today, I mean, I think two lovely boys that were um, a good classic example. There were two boys who stole from the shop. I wasn't aware they stole. They were very clever. They drew up a plan, how they'd make sure Gail wasn't there. They'd steal this, this skateboard and they'd come in the front way and go down. The, well, one kept the people busy, the other one had run out the door. And they got away with it. And the only thing wrong with it was they had the plan in, a, in their shorts and mum washed the clothes that night. <laughs> You love Not that? such great criminal minds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and mum rang me and said, I want you to call the police. I said, oh, really? And I said, okay, bring them in. So she brought them in, these two boys, i never forget. She brought them in, lovely boys too, and she brought them in and she was so, I'll tell you what, she would have put them in jail. She was a magistrate. They'd be in jail forever, you know. She was so cranky. And, uh, and I felt, you know, I thought they were such nice kids and I said, you know, can I just give them one chance? I don't want them having any chances, you know. They've done the wrong thing. They know better. Anyway, we finally agreed that they would work for me for a month, and uh, this was part of the, my schedule that I did all the time. They'd work with me for a month after school, and they wouldn't be paid for that, and they'd have to return the product and, you know, make compensation in that way. And then I said, at the end of the month, if they're any good, I'll employ them. And that's what I used to do. I reckon I've employed more shoplifters than I. But I know, I think a lovely story. One day, Judah said to me, you ought to listen to this boy. And I went out the front of the shop and this kid said, and he said, my name's so-and-so. I've been coming to this shop for a job. I've applied for a job here, you know, 10 times or something, and I've never got a job. And I know how to get a job here. You've got to steal something. <laughs> Everybody in here steals and they get a job. And I looked at Judith and Judith looked at me and said, I told you. And I looked and I said, I'm very sorry, young man, you've got a job. That's it. You know, and like, would you believe that? The reputation I had was you had to steal to get a job. <laughs> I think you're, are you 77 now? Yeah, I'm 77. Any yeah. plans to pull well, back I'm still for working. good time? I'm still running the business. I'm still loving it. I mean, I, I, what I've done to, to to maintain what I do, I've um, cut down the hours of the business. So I close on a Tuesday and a Thursday. I call it product testing. <laughs> what do you get out of the business now? I mean, a lot of people at your point would say, I've given it years of my life, I'm going to retire and just do what I want. What keeps you well, working? I am retired in the sense that I call this retirement, you know. Like I used to work seven days a week, you know. Uh, I call this really a holiday time, you know. It's like... To me, from the time I was seven, when I really first earned that first bit of money, I've always had a business. I've always run some sort of business. 
it's what I do. It's it's like you know, it's it's how I live, and it's what gets me out of bed every day, and uh, it's what gets me through difficulties. Like I had breast cancer, and that look, I've got lymphedema. You know, now when I got breast cancer, the thing that kept me going was my business. You know, like the shop continued. You know, you sort of, and it's the it's 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 an interaction I think with the community that I love. I love that. I love it when people walk in nowadays, what happens now? Like when the, the COVID came, you know, everyone's closing down everywhere. And I said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm not closing down. I've got a stock take to do. I'll do that. So I started doing my stock take as I normally do in February, March. I usually do it through till June. And I thought I'll get it done quicker this year, which I did. And, uh, you know, I just kept working. And, and someone said, what do you expect? I said, I don't expect anything. We'll see what happens. And so everyone closed down. So naturally, if I'm the only one in Brisbane, it's got to be a bonus, you know, it's got to be a bit of a plus. <laughs> in the photo that I've seen of, of you sitting in front of your burnt-out store, yes. the burnout wreck of the store, you've got your arm around a dog. That's, that's a schmetterling, yeah. Have you always had dogs in your life? Always, yeah. When I, well, I think the thing is, you know, I've, my dog is an assistance dog, the one I have now. I've trained her in assistance. And the reason is people probably don't realise, but when I was a youngster, my mother was a very smart woman. She realised that I had, well, I was a challenging child, I suppose. I don't know how you describe it. I, don't, I couldn't look at myself. But obviously I had issues. And my mother decided, although she wasn't an animal-friendly person, that I needed a dog. So she got me a dog. And she never, ever patted a dog. or She always fed them, but she wouldn't. And it was your job to look after the dog. And my mother always has said to me, always have a dog. And in fact, she, got, she was on dialysis in the last years of her life. And the last thing she said to me on the phone the morning she died, or the morning she went into a coma, she rang me the night before and said, look, I think things are going to get tough in the morning because she'd been on dialysis. So she knew the story. And I said, I'll come straight down. She said, no, no, you'll upset your father. That was my mother. <laughs> I said, mum, she said, Gail, don't come down. You'll be... You'll, you've got to have a lot to do when you get here. And I said, thanks, Mum. And she said, and by the way, always have a dog. And the dog in my life, like now my dog is called my assistance dog. I guess I've had an assistance dog all my life, you know, because they're just part of my, my psyche. Keep me calm. <laughs> is that what they did for you when you were a kid too? I think that's really the answer. Animals have kept me calm and you learn there's a lot you can get. Like if, if the world's falling apart around you, you look at your dog and they don't know. Like that dog that I had my arm around, she was blind. She was born with a small eye and went blind by the time she was two. So she couldn't see what was going on. So here's this dog Schmetterling. I called her Schmetterling. And, you know, I was looking at Schmetterling and say, well, Schmetterling, things are pretty tough. But anyway. So the, does your dog now go out into the water with you? Well, she goes, I don't, I don't go on the water. I do go on the water, but not very much. She goes with me everywhere. You know, she, she would have been here today, I thought I... And I decided to bring her, but I decided to leave her, which she wasn't very happy about. But she goes, you know, everywhere I go. She I don't go on the water so much now. I go on, occasionally in a canoe, but I, she, she's not really – I haven't bred her for that. I haven't trained her for that, you know. So I, I, water is not really her go. She has to go into a treadmill twice a week because she doesn't have any hips. She has to go into a swimming pool once a week because it's a part of her, her rehabilitation because she was actually born with no hips. So, you know, would you believe I'd get this dog with nobody hips, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, when the, they said to me, shooter, I said, well, what else can I do? And there was a, 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 a vet I knew who knew my history of my life, and he just said to me, girl, if you do what you've done to yourself to this dog, it'll have no problems. I said, right, I'll do it. That's what I've done. 
Gail, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to tell us some of these incredible stories. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.